Hi, you're listening to The Lit Pickers with my friend Deepanjana, who is here with her friend Supriya. And I have a question for you, Deepanjana. I've been hearing the words comfort read more often than not on social media today. And mm. I want to know, is this just the guilty pleasure like refurbished? Okay, here's the thing. In the post-pandemic world that we live in, anything that provides comfort is to be respected, loved and cherished. Because mm. I think if there's one thing that we've realized in that period, which I hope future generations will be able to forget it as easily as we were able to forget the Spanish flu era. But for those of us who were actually alive, sentient and survived that time, the importance of comfort is something I think that we really were made aware of in the pandemic period. Yes, my entire wardrobe, which is now... 100% pajamas is testament to this. So yeah, I think the idea of comfort just became much more prevalent in everyone's minds post pandemic. Now, that's not a bad thing. Mm. I have not a very clear idea though of whether there's the same kind of prejudice that comes with the idea of guilty pleasure. Right. In that comfort treats you're allowed to have. Do you know what I mean? Guilty pleasures were like, you will be slightly shamed if I see you with this book. Yeah, I find that so funny because when someone says, oh, guilty pleasures in reading, that immediately gets my back up. And I want to talk about all the books that I like that other people might consider guilty pleasures, but that mm. I would like to defiantly consider just pleasures. Mm. But the idea of a comfort read sets me a little bit more on edge. And I'm not sure why. I haven't been able to figure out what it is. Why am I against the idea of reading as being comforting? I mean, I, like you, am someone for whom reading has been life itself. Mm -hmm. So where am I going wrong here? So tell me something. For you, when you think of comforting yourself with a book, is there something in particular that pops to your mind immediately? I'm used to thinking of things that give me solace as consolation reading, which feels like escape reading, which is something that we've talked about on this mm. podcast before. New listeners, that was a season two episode on what constitutes literary escapism. But when I think of what do I turn to when I need to feel like myself again? Mm -hmm. I read poetry. Mm. So is that my comfort read? Well, I would say yes. Mm. For most people, poetry is a, <laughs> it's a mountain that they are rather daunted by most of the time. Yeah, you're so right about that. And I think it's been an endeavor on this podcast, which uh, maybe we should work on even harder to just try and get people to see poetry as the gateway to reading and to books mm. and to literature that it is. The thing is that, you know, there's a lot that I think the internet has done for poetry to feel more accessible, quite That's honestly. That's very true, yeah. You know, a lot of younger people who don't necessarily have access to books or are taught that books are <laughs> the best thing in the world tend to pick up yeah. Instagram poetry. Exactly, because the reality of it is that poetry is not just very difficult to write, it's also difficult to put together, it's difficult to publish, it's difficult to sell. And it's difficult to buy. Very difficult to buy. Yeah. If by some freak of nature you found yourself in a bookshop that has a poetry shelf, you will invariably find that that very slim volume seems extremely expensive for what you're paying. Yeah. Right? I have a book of poems in my bag right now and I think I paid 1100 rupees for it. That's a lot. I remember one of the first books of poetry that I picked up with money that I had earned was... The Norton Anthology of Early German Poetry. 
when I bought it, I was like, what am I doing? Because it was 800 rupees, literally in another century. It was a lot of money at that point of time. But the thing is, poetry is difficult in a very sort of mechanical sense. I'm not even talking about meaning and stuff like that. These are difficult works to write. So putting together a volume takes time. For a reader, though, like it's been put forward as the opposite of comfort traditionally, I think, because it's been like, oh, you must be so smart. You must get every illusion. Right. This is about acquiring culture mm. rather than necessarily finding... Are you able to figure out joy. whether it's a pentameter or a, some other meter? You know what I mean? <laughs> In the haiku, can you identify every consonant and syllable? And it's like, there's a certain ponciness, basically, that's associated with poetry, which is right. a shame. Yeah. And the internet and social media have done a lot do you know, take that away. I'm going to just throw out random names, but you know, poets like Mary Oliver, Anne Carson, they've just been circulated so widely. And it's wonderful that this happens, that, you know, you can just sort of be scrolling through your explore feed on Instagram or whatever is the equivalent on a TikTok. And then you find a fragment and it calls out to you and it speaks to you in a way that you just didn't know that words could do. Right. And so much of social media is about that dopamine rush. So in a very real sense, this fragmented poetry, which may not be read the way the poet intended it to be read even, does end up in some strange way being comfort for a lot of people. But let me turn the question back to you. Mm. How do you feel about the idea of comfort reads and what do you think of when you think of what comforts you as a reader? Like I said, I'm very glad that, you know, social media makes poetry more accessible. What you were just saying about the fragmentary nature of it, that's something that I'm a little more ambivalent about. Oh, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> You're so right about that. Because it's just exactly what you just said, that the poet has put those lines in the middle or the start or the end of a poem because they want you to go on that journey of those words. Poetry particularly is such a carefully constructed and crafted art form. There is no such thing as just casually slipping a line in, which in fact in prose happens all the time. A lot of prose has padding. <laughs> no poetry has padding. Like every line, every dot, the placement, everything is so carefully worked out and the poetry really expects you to go through the whole thing. And so when we pull out like four lines, I really wish it would make you go back and read the whole thing. Mm. That's not always possible. And what I worry about is that in this sort of ADHD generation that we are all in many ways part of, where, you know, we expect poetry to reach out to us immediately, sink its little hook in for one infinitesimal part of a second and then pull it out again. That's not actually how poetry works. Poetry's hook just sinks lower and lower into your skin, into your nerves, into your heart, basically. Yeah. You have to give it that time. If you do, it will comfort you. That's a great point, that the comfort of poetry should be in anti-immediacy rather than in the quick hit. Yeah, the dopamine rush is not what poetry is about for me. So yeah, that's something that I feel quite ambivalent about. Equally ambivalent, I feel about what I was going to say for my comfort read, fairy tales. Mm. <laughs> so... For me, at least, fairy tales were one of the first bits of fiction that came into my life. I didn't read them until later. I was told them, but they're among my first books. Mm -hmm. However, the older that I've got, the more trouble I have with these stories because on one hand, they're tremendously engaging. We know this, right? But the way we've been given them, 
basically filtered through well-meaning men like Brothers Grimm, like Hans Christian Andersen. They've taken so much and changed it around to suit status quos of their time, right? So I find myself wondering how much of this moralizing worldview, which is invariably part of fairy tales that we are given and weren't, it seems, part of the fairy tales as they were originally told, how much of this is impacting me? So even though I enjoy the stories, the older that I've got, the more I end up wondering about them. And if you're someone like me who likes overthinking, there's actually great comfort in that, in looking at the story, thinking about what it's doing to you. I love the idea of overthinking being a comfort. I think that really is one of the gifts. Mm. And it is a gift that a reading habit gives you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, did you read fairy tales as a kid? Did you enjoy them as a kid? Yeah, I was also read them, but I feel like I graduated pretty quickly to reading the newspaper, thanks to my dad. See, this is what we mean when we say reading is a physical action. I think perhaps my very first memory of reading is actually scrambling on top of the divan where my like dad Aww. was lying down, you know, mm-hmm. on a pillow with the newspaper folded into quarters like mm-hmm. they do mm-hmm. and holding it up and then trying to like kind of read over his nose. Mm. So I graduated pretty quickly to the world of magical toys mm-hmm. and school stories and other stuff like that. Perhaps the children's author who lingered in my consciousness for the Mm -hmm. longest. This is going to sound so strange, I think, to everyone who has grown up on things like Harry Potter, because this was written a hundred years before (laughs) before that. The work of L.M. Montgomery, who Mm. wrote the Anne of Green Gables series. And Anne grows up through the seven or eight books that Montgomery wrote about her, because she was writing from rural Canada, and she was writing, I think, from the start of the 20th century up to World War II. Mm. And... There's just enough in those books that I think when you go back to them, you see a reflection, of course, of things that you didn't get when you were younger, but Mm. also reflections of your own girlhood, which I think is a very L.M. Montgomery word to use. (laughs) And you see how you have changed. And so there's an odd comfort in that. I think rereading is one of the great comforts of literature, isn't it? Absolutely. For me, one of the children's fiction series that I've reread with great joy, and it's contemporary, the Percy Jackson series by Rick Riordan. I think I've read like the first two or three of those and they're so much fun. They're so much fun. I'm not as much in love with more of the recent stuff that he's written. I feel like, you know, it has less of the ease that the Percy Jackson series did. Oh yeah, those ones really did flow. Do you feel like the writer has been growing and the character has been growing as the series has proceeded? I think there's a real joy in seeing yes, that, isn't yes, there? Yes, absolutely. Nobody is stagnant. In the early Percy Jackson and Rick Riordan stuff in general, there's fantastic little bits of insight. Like Percy Jackson, for example, is dyslexic. And it turns out that his dyslexia is because he can actually read ancient Greek fluently. Hieroglyphics are not a problem. Cuneiform is not a problem. Letters, on the other, are. Mm. Little things like that just, you know, they were very well imagined. He was also one of the first authors that I can remember from contemporary children's fiction who very easily brought in things like gender fluidity, queerness, adolescent longing in a way that didn't feel tokenistic. It just felt natural. Awkward questions were asked. Answers were sometimes given, sometimes refused. It was just so much fun to read and so well done. The Percy Jackson books, I've lost count of how many times I've reread them. Great fun. And they've always comforted me because they do what 
most of good children's fiction does, which is remind you that there's a lot that is truly unsettling and disturbing in the world, but that even though you can't solve any of those problems, it gives you the hope that you can survive them. Right. And make sense of them, which of course is, you know, what else are the two ends of a book supposed to contain? Exactly. If not some order for the chaos (laughs) that they're describing. The basic premise of ancient Egyptian mythology is that the civilization of Egypt is this little isolated island in the middle of chaos. So it's math, right? right? Math is stability and order. And that is preserved by the myths and cycles of stories that are spun out of the primordial chaos that it's surrounded by. And those are the stories of, you know, Osiris and yeah. all of this. Oh, my God, they knew. They knew. <laughs> I think maybe that's why murder mysteries are such a comfort for so many people, right? And golden age crime fiction, the kind of stuff where you have an answer to very difficult problems at the end of the book. So funnily, for me, crime fiction has never been comforting in that sense. But I understand philosophically where it comes from, because of all the genres of fiction out there, at a level of concept, I don't think you have anything more hopeful than crime fiction. Because Mm. crime fiction tells you that here's a complete mess of all things sacred, sane, orderly. And then in comes either a detective or a policeman and one person is able to set things right and bring order to chaos. Yeah, it's the hope that justice will be delivered. Yeah, those secrets that need to be brought to light will be brought to light despite systems and individual agency working towards it. So I think one thing I'm getting from this conversation so far is the sense that while it may seem like a comfort read is something that resolves ambiguity, it is both something that helps make things clear Mm -hmm. or gestures at a clear answer, but also something that gives voice to ambiguity. I have a question for you, Miss Nair. Do you think there is comfort to be derived from feeling guilty about reading something? Ms. Bal, that is such a great question. I think satisfaction Mm. can be derived quite powerfully from the idea of consuming drunk. Mm. You know, the Chinese invented this phrase, revenge procrastination, right? Revenge procrastination. Yeah, which is about when you get out of work super late and you need to go to bed so that you can wake up early to get back to work, but you just lie in bed and veg out instead of going to sleep and resting because... You just want the leisure time that you didn't get. I think maybe that's close to what you might be Mm. talking about. The sense that, you know, you're expected to read challenging things and instead you take revenge comfort. Even though these two genres have nothing to do with each other, when you were talking about Anne of Green Gables and the sense of girlhood, like, you know, there's a safe space that the fiction provides, right? You read into it and you see a little bit of yourself in a very comfortable sense, right? But there's like trashy stuff that lets you see parts of yourself in a way that feels safe. Because there's no judgment. You're not supposed to learn from this thing. It sounds like the obvious candidate for that category is romance. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge proponent of trashy romances because I think that particular kind of trash brings with it no pressure, like you said, of learning anything. But it also at the same time gives you a safe space to think about what you desire. Now, As women and girls, we're not encouraged to feel comfortable with feeling desire. 
And as young men, though, you're not supposed to think about it at all. It's outright repressed, right? You must. Yeah. And of course, that's not even beginning to talk about what it's like for queer people. Yeah. So I think romance is a really powerful vehicle for that. But like specifically trashy romance for me. Here, a listener might be forgiven for asking you, is there such a thing as a non-trashy romance? And the answer is yes. We've done a whole episode on it. (laughs) We did. Yeah, we did. Excellent uh, episode, if I do say so myself, on romance fiction. Mm. But like those were examples of good writing, where work has been put into both the craft, the form, the subject, responding to society, all the things that we expect literature to do. There's also the trashy variety, which is not particularly interested in going beyond cliches, but at the same time, is just able to do something for you. And one of those things being show you what you care about, show you what brings you pleasure. Oh, yeah. You know, you've put me in mind not of traditionally published romance, Mm. though I can see exactly what you're talking about. And I know that if you want to read a romance novel in which a young virgin gets to screw a werewolf, you can do that. Do it. I think it's fantastic that that exists. This reminds me of something that I've stumbled on Mm -hmm. in fan fiction, which I don't think existed a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, so... Audiences take what I'm saying with a pinch of salt. And you too, Ms. Bal. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, we're used to thinking of fan fiction as, say, about two characters, right? If it's yeah. romantic fanfic. But this is just about like the one character that you're really into. Mm. So it's not me, Supriya, writing a story, imagining myself in Gondor with Faramir. It's called Your Name Fiction, where the writer writes a story and then in brackets, they put the letter Y slash the letter N. Your name, are you okay? Faramir said, rushing into the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. The way I discovered this was because I was scrolling Twitter after watching Top Gun Maverick to see what people were saying. And I stumbled on tons of this kind of fan fiction being written by presumably young people about the mustachioed blonde. I think it's the one who plays Goose's Goose's son. son? Yeah. Right. So there's also such a thing as comfort writing. Mm. My reaction was to be put off by this Mm. because to me, fan fiction is also about like, it's supposed to be immersive. I want to read about Faramir and Eowyn. But to insert yourself into that story. It seemed very counterintuitive to me. Isn't the fiction supposed to be doing the work for you? It doesn't have to work for either you or me. But it's, again, sort of, you know, providing you a space in which you don't have to be like, oh, what does this mean in a larger sense? It's just uh, taking pleasure in it. Yeah, I think you're completely right about that. And if anything, something like this allows me to understand that guilty pleasures, easy reading... The thing that unites all these slightly infradig mm. ways of looking at literature is that they're considered passive. Mm. But in fact, there's very little reading that's actually just lean back reading, right? It's doing its work within you. So true. Most reading requires you to do something as well. Yeah. To come back to the question that you asked right at the start of our conversation, maybe that's what comfort reading should be about. Reads that don't require you necessarily to do work. You don't feel like you have to struggle actively against the text, (laughs) but that it's taking you along with it or that it's returning you to yourself in some important way, like poetry. Like poetry. So before we wind up today, can I ask you to read a poem? Yeah. Before I came to the studio, I looked at my bookshelf and I have one shelf of books that I arranged specifically so that when I needed a book in my hands, I would just be able to like pick something off from there 
and then I I know that whatever page I would turn to, things would be okay. I love that. That's such a good way of organizing your bookshelf. I'm so glad that I've had the chance to do it. And so the book in my bag, which cost me a lot of money, was <laughs> a book of poems by Elizabeth Bishop. Mm-hmm. I opened it and found a short poem that I have really liked. But instead of that, I'm going to read the poem that turned up when I opened it a second time because <laughs> okay. it's a little more famous and it's a short poem. So bear with me. This is Elizabeth Bishop's Insomnia. The moon in the bureau mirror looks out a million miles and perhaps with pride at herself, but she never, never smiles. Far and away beyond sleep, or perhaps she's a daytime sleeper. By the universe, deserted. She'd tell her to go to hell. And she'd find a body of water or a mirror on which to dwell. So wrap up care in a cobweb and drop it down the well into that world inverted where left is always right, where the shadows are really the body, where we stay awake all night, where the heavens are shallow as the sea is now deep, and you love me. Oh, I love that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Elizabeth Bishop. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth Bishop. That is everything that I think a poem should be able to do to a reader. Uh, Just, you know, bring you in. And we were talking earlier about how poetry seems like a mountain, like I'd said, something that you have to scale and understand and grapple with. I really think one of the reasons why many of the generations now feel that way is because they think of poetry as something that has to be only read, as opposed to something that can be heard. You were listening to The Lit Pickers. I'm Dipanjana. With me was Supriya. And we'll see you soon. Bye for now. The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag LitPickers. Follow Supriyanda Panjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books you've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks. Keep listening.